Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. What are you telling your kids? What kinds of conversations are you having about travel or, I don't know, with your aging parents about their travel? What kinds of conversations are happening at your church about mission trips this spring or summer? What about the Summer Olympics in Hong Kong? Uh, The coronavirus top of the news across many sectors today. What's topping the news for you? Hopefully, uh, I I can convince you that the good news of Jesus Christ tops the news every day, certainly on this Ash Wednesday this first day of the season of Lent, season of uh, intentional preparation uh, for the events of, of Holy Week, particularly Good Friday and then Easter. Like, let's, uh, let's see if you and I can get the good news of Jesus Christ trending today, at least in our own lives, if not in social media uh, and in the culture writ large. So there you go. Good news topping the news today. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LaBerge. We have a crazy good lineup uh, today. First up, I'm going to be talking with Aaron uh, Damiani. He is a pastor. He's also an author. We're going to talk about the season of Lent. Um, We are also going to talk about um, some reasons that some people don't like the idea of Lent. There you go. I've also got John Inazu up uh, at the bottom of this hour, and he and I are going to talk about breaking out of the white evangelical echo chamber. So all of that in the first hour this morning. Let's, uh, Let's be sure that we intentionally, during this season of Lent, um, add some spiritual discipline to to our own lives. So, you know, you have that expulsive power of a new affection. So it's not just about giving something up. It is about um, what am I going to take on? So let me encourage you, if you haven't thought yet through what you're going to do during Lent, you could join me. Uh, one of the things that I intend to do intentionally every day during the season of Lent, it's actually already a part of my regular um, spiritual rhythm and practice, is that I intentionally walk my way uh, prayerfully through Ephesians uh, 6, where Paul instructs us about the full armor of God, instructs us not only um, about it, but instructs us to actually put it on, to don the full armor of God. So armor up today using Ephesians chapter 6 as we enter into the conversations of this day, seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Aaron uh, Damiani. He is a pastor. He is also an author. You can check him out at AaronDamiani.com. You can also follow him on uh, Twitter. That is also his handle. Aaron, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Good to be here. Well, we um, we have some copies of The Good of Giving Up, uh, and so I always want our listeners to know that in advance. Um, and so as you're listening this morning, if you're saying to yourself, wow, I would really like to have my hands on that resource, we have copies of The Good of Giving Up, which is the book we're going to discuss here with uh, with Aaron this morning. 
uh, discovering the freedom of love, uh, of Lent. Um, and, uh, and so just be mindful of that. And you know, you can always text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you're interested in uh, a copy of the book. All right, Aaron, give us an overview of Lent. Some people don't even know what the word means. So what is Lent? Yes. So, you know, essentially Lent is a 40 day, uh, spiritual uh, journey to Easter where we, uh, grow to become like Christ and uh, we also just draw close to him and his people. And uh, so the word Lent is it's kind of an old Saxon word for spring. Um, and it helps us understand that, like, this is spiritual springtime. We're doing some spiritual cleaning. Uh, we kind of have a, uh, a sense in which there's new life that's budding after a period of winter. And all the while, it gets brighter and brighter, warmer and warmer, uh, not just outside, hopefully. Hopefully, uh, it, it does get warmer outside, but in our hearts uh, and in the spiritual temperature of our churches, so that by Easter Sunday, we are overflowing, ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This, this idea that we need to prepare ourselves, um, yes. even, even annually, right? So mm-hmm. there are going to be people listening who are going to be like, you know, I've been through this uh, rotation. I've been through this rhythm. I've done this before. I know what Easter is. Yeah. I know what's coming. I don't. I don't really need to uh, to prepare my my heart mm. or myself for this. What would you say to such a um, such a reaction or response? Yeah, you know, I'd say that um, one of the things that we see in Scripture is just warnings against sort of um, being lax or kind of resting on spiritual victories in the past. We have an enemy. We have a we you know we we fight against the devil as well as our own our own flesh as well as the, the ways the world wants to shape us every year. And it, we actually need to actively resist. Uh, and this is where some of the disciplines of Lent um, come in, where you know we take fasting, or we take devoted prayer, or we take giving our money away. Um, and what this does is this actually goes at some of those ways that the world, the flesh, and the devil would want to shape us, make us a little bit too comfortable, and also, I think, even like numb our appetite for the living Christ. Um, so if we want to get that appetite back, um, Lent is kind of one of those seasons where, you know, we can combine all three of those practices in a really powerful way with Christians around the world um, and, uh, and actually seek, seek first the kingdom of God. Year by year, it gets more and more powerful rather than more and more uh, numbing or more and more rote. Right. The kingdom drawing near, I think, is something that um, we need to be mindful of. I mean, part of my motivation to draw near to to Christ and draw near to God is just an acknowledgement and recognition that the kingdom is coming. It's actively coming. It is pressing itself into um, our temporal reality. I think we miss that. I think that we imagine that the kingdom is far away um, and in some senses getting further and further away but Lent is a season really of drawing near. So talk a little bit. Um, let's do this. I know that the imposition of ashes is a practice um, on, obviously, Ash Wednesday for many, many people. And there will be people today who will see, let's say, a commentator on television, and they're going to have a smudge on their forehead. Um, for people who did not grow up with any sort of liturgical rhythm of the church, what is the imposition of ashes, and why do people do that on Ash Wednesday? So the imposition of ashes is a practice that started around the 6th century, although people in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, uh, they, would re- they would actually repent 
or they would go into a season of mourning um, with with ashes on their body. Um, and essentially what this, uh, it's an expression of, hey, I'm a mortal being um, and I need the gospel. So when the ashes are, you know, tonight, when we have our Ash Wednesday service in downtown Chicago, um, I'll be um, putting ashes on people's foreheads, men, women, and children saying, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. And then I'll say, repent and believe the gospel. Um, because the truth is that the ashes are in the shape of a cross. And so they're not simply uh, remembering our mortality. It's also remembering that death was the entrance way into that kingdom, that uh, for Jesus, uh, the cross was not the end. It was actually uh, the beginning. It was the entrance way into eternal life. And that's our entrance way as well. Um, so we're it really, we're kind of aligning under the both the sobering truth of the gospel, as well as the hopeful truth of the gospel, that yes, we are mortal uh, and that we, we are going to die soon. Uh, some of us know that better than others, um, but we are also uh, in Christ. We're united with him in his death and his resurrection. Uh, and that we actually have people, sometimes people say the bright sadness of Lent, um, that it's not just a time of sadness, it's a time of brightness and it's a time of joy. And so ashes in the shape of a cross, uh, help us to tangibly take part in that reality and remember it. I'm talking with Pastor Aaron Damiani. He is, in addition to uh, the pastor of a local congregation uh, in Chicago, he is also the author of The Good of Giving Up, Discovering the Freedom of Lent. Uh, We have some copies to give away here um, in the studio today. If you're interested, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, let me remind you, just text the word book. If you add anything else to the text, the whole process blows up. So just the word book. Um, uh, Aaron, I I appreciate in the imposition of ashes the declaration not only, right, that I am dust, but that Jesus has conquered the power of death. Like I, it is so meaningful to me. Mm, Um, It's also this incredible opportunity, this incredible public witness it's different. Um, it's different than wearing, you know, a gold cross around my neck that becomes, um, you know, an mm-hmm. accessory or an adornment. It is. Uh, it is something that is very different than what the world is used to seeing, uh, particularly, you know, for those of us who want to have our faces clean most of the time. And yeah. So I just want to encourage listeners that, uh, you know, to participate in an imposition of ashes today, even if that's a new experience for you. Find a church in your local community that is um, that is offering an Ash Wednesday service. The imposition of ashes will very likely be a part of that. Um, and then don't wipe it off. Like, right, there's a part of this that's about walking out into the world and allowing this to be um, our declaration today on this Ash Wednesday as an opportunity to open up conversations, spiritual conversations with our neighbors um, who may have no idea um, what we're doing or why we're doing it. All right, Aaron Damiani and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. The book is The Good of Giving Up. We'll be right back. I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Aaron Damiani. Uh, He is the author of The Good of Giving Up. We've got copies if you are interested uh, in in one, this is a this is an opportunity for you to engage in uh, in a conversation about Lent and discover the freedom of Lent. Um, the book is the good of giving up. You can always text the word book to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Let's give a, uh, let's give people a taste of what's in here. You make the case for Lent in the book, and then you talk about the path of Lent. 
Um, and then you spend some time um, really, I think, talking to pastors and ministry leaders about how we would lead others through Lent or lead children through Lent and churches through Lent. So um, talk with us for a moment. Uh, make the case not just for Lent, but make the case that, that Lent is not so much about giving things up um, as it is about calling us to become more like Christ. That's right. There's always got to be a purpose behind our spiritual practices. Otherwise, we're just sort of doing a dog and pony show, trying to impress ourselves or impress each other. Um, you know, the, the whole purpose behind Lent uh, is to shape in us the image of Christ. And I usually find each year the Lord wants to do one specific thing in me and usually one or two specific things in our local church. Um, as we kind of collectively and individually sort of open ourselves up to him, um, that it's not so much that, you know, okay, I'm fasting today or I'm, I'm giving up meat and therefore, um, I'm going to be a more virtuous person as a result. No, it's more like, this is more like a crowbar that opens up the soul to the grace of the Lord. We kind of lead with the body, uh, which are gifts from God and part of our spiritual formation. We lead with the body in a way that impacts our souls. Um, so it might be that this year, for some people, um, there's some anger in there that the Lord wants to bring into his transforming presence. And uh, the practices of Lent, fasting, prayer, almsgiving, um, is going to bring about, over the period of time, some uh, some transformation to that anger. Or maybe uh, there is someone who's struggling with lust. They want some freedom. Uh, from from the addictive power of lust. And so as they train their physical appetites uh, for food and as they devote themselves to prayer, give their money away, they'll find, as many Christians have over the centuries, that, that actually taming one appetite um, under the power of the Holy Spirit leads to taming other appetites. Um, and so um, the whole purpose behind Lent is uh, that there's just more of Jesus in us by the time we get to Easter. Um, I find that one, one of the first impacts that Lent had on me is that I was no longer caught off guard when Easter rolled around. Uh, and I really actually wanted it. So if you think about being invited over to a big feast at grandma's house or, you know, your favorite restaurant, um, you're going to want to show up hungry. And for years, I just didn't show up hungry. I showed up sort of half satisfied on the junk food of the culture. And uh, once I practiced Lent, I, I just noticed that I really wanted to be there on Easter Sunday, and I was ready to to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And there's just more of a, a taste for uh, for the gospel. Um, so, so the whole purpose of Lent, I think, is important to understand that before jumping in, because, you know, when you're in the middle of the journey and it's week four and you're fasting uh, one, one day a week, um, and you're giving your money away and you want to know why you're doing it, it's just important to remember this is all about forming the image of Christ in us, um, and that's that's the only part of Lent that will last through eternity. The Good of Giving Up uh, is the book. Aaron Damiani is is not only the author, he's also a pastor. Hey, Aaron, why don't you, um, why don't you, why don't we take a little segue here and um, talk about church and church life? Um, tell people where you pastor and yeah. one, one highlight of being the pastor of a local congregation. Well, yes, I, boy, I, so I'm the pastor of Emanuel Anglican church. Uh, we are in Chicago's uptown neighborhood. We started about, 
seven and a half years ago, uh, kind of the planting process and have been going for about uh, six and a half years now. Um, and uh, we, have a, we have a good mix of people in, in our church. Um, we, we skew younger uh, just because we're you know, closer to where a lot of more younger people live. Um, I think one thing I love about being a pastor is to see when, when, when people willingly sacrifice uh, their, their life and their convenience for the kingdom of God. It is one of the most humbling encouraging things I ever get to witness. And uh, when you church plant, you really see a lot of sacrifices being made. And then you see the spiritual fruit of those sacrifices. Um, I also love when Lent comes around um, for two reasons. Number one, because um, there's a natural willingness on the part of individuals uh, for some personal reformation and personal repentance, which which is is a big blessing to my pastor's heart. Secondly, the, there's a collective creativity that comes out of, and this is, I did not expect this, but some of our most fruitful artistic seasons as a church happen during the season of Lent. And I think it's because uh, there's a greater, there's just greater activity of the Holy Spirit. There's also, uh, there's a greater sense in which people are bonding together and uh, wanting to, create beauty in the midst of a season of, of repentance and growing beauty. And so as a pastor, it's, it's a, an incredibly humbling thing to see uh, the Spirit of God come alive as a whole body of people are in a season of repentance. All right, if you want to check it out, Emmanuel Anglican uh, is Emmanuel with an I. Um, right. Not Emmanuel with an E. Uh, it, it, are both spellings acceptable? Like I mean, I realize <laughs> yeah, in, the, in the church name, in, in the church name, yeah. there's an I, but I We're are both I, uh, are both spellings acceptable? They're both transliterations from the Hebrew. So okay, um, so there you go. Yeah, but we love the song "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel." So whenever the season of Advent comes around, um, you'll never find us singing more passionately than than when uh, <laughs> we're singing "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel." Um, yeah, right, Emmanuel I love that. with an I. We're gonna um, we're gonna pray for you and for um, the witness of the Emmanuel Anglican Church in the city of Chicago during this season of Lent. Father, we thank, thank you for you. Aaron. Um, we thank you uh, that he is not only a brother in Christ, but he is a shepherd uh, under your leadership and guidance. That he is pastoring a flock that you are drawing unto yourself. We thank you for the ways in which uh, Aaron has helped us today draw unto you uh, and to take advantage of this season of Lent. We ask, Father, that as he imposes um, ashes during this Ash Wednesday service, that the message would ring uh, with clarity and truth, um, that people's yes. lives would be genuinely touched, and that the city of Chicago would be transformed by your presence and power in and through not only this local congregation, but by extension, all of their brothers and sisters in Christ in that place. Uh, so thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for the season of Lent. Thank you for our brother Aaron and for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Aaron, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. It was wonderful to be with you on this Ash Wednesday. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. Me. We'll be right back. Don't you just don't you just love the body of Christ? I mean, don't you just love getting to talk to Christians from other places um, where obviously God has ignited their desire not only to draw unto him personally, but to draw others unto him. I mean, don't you just love that? Don't you just love knowing that Aaron Damiani is in the world and doing the bidding of Christ and being a pastor and planting a church? I mean, like, I, 
I love knowing that. So uh, pray for uh, a pastor and a church in another city today other than your own. I mean, I pray for the pastors and the churches in my own community fairly regularly. Um, but this has inspired me to be mindful that um, God is busy cultivating a harvest of righteousness, not only across the country, but around the world. So let's be praying today for pastors and churches in other cities other than our own, um, where the, the fire of revival and evangelism and church planting is is at work and the and the soil of people's hearts is really being tilled. I just, it thrills, it thrills my heart. It thrills my heart. All right, next up, John Inazu. Uh, I like to talk to John from time to time. He is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, he he speaks frequently at the intersection of not just religion and politics, but sort of the ethical way in which we talk with one another as evangelicals. And so we are going to talk about um, breaking out of white evangelical echo chambers. And that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When parents struggle over the behavior of their teen, I encourage them to step back and take a look at the bigger picture. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. No matter what's going on in your home today, it's not the whole story. The whole story is what God is up to, His bigger picture, which involves plans, people, and purposes beyond your imagination. I know it's hard to do. Your struggle isn't any less important. But use the difficult season to deepen your relationship with your child instead of simply trying to fix their behavior. Place it all in God's hands. He's the one who promises to cause all things to work together for good of those who love Him. And that's a pretty good, bigger picture. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. John Inazu. You can follow him on Twitter at John Inazu. Inazu is spelled I-N-A-Z-U. He is a law professor uh, at uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also an author. He has an excellent book that came out a couple of years ago called Confident Pluralism, and we all uh, joyfully anticipate the release of his next book along with Tim Keller. It is entitled Uncommon Ground, due out this April. John, welcome back. Carmen, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So your um, your piece in Christianity Today about breaking out of the white evangelical echo chamber caught my eye and my attention. Uh, and so I'd love to talk with you about this today. What's um, what's the essential argument you're making here? Yeah, I was really trying to do two things with the piece. One was to do a, a bit of a breakdown of what we mean by the category of white evangelicals and, and trying to give some nuance to how they approached, particularly President Trump, from either critically or positively. And then the second part was to suggest that really no matter where you fall on that spectrum, uh, and particularly for white evangelicals, there's a tendency to be in a bit of a bubble, to not listen to and be exposed to outside influences, and so to try to provide some encouraging suggestions on how you could um, broaden uh, conversations and, and friendships and that sort of thing. So we have um, we have had a number of conversations here on the program um, about the question uh, defining evangelicalism or how to define evangelicalism. We've had Thomas Kidd on to talk about who is an evangelical. Um, we've had, I mean, you know, we everybody that wants to talk about it, we try to talk about it with them. 
Um, but there still seems to be an awful lot of confusion, not only among people who I would regard as religious, but increasingly among those who are non-religious and secular and just see it as a pejorative term. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I think in a lot of the circles in which I find myself, it, it's it's seemed very uniformly negative and, and characterizes uh, in the eyes of at least some speakers, pretty much everyone indistinguishably. I do think one important thought that I try to remind myself of is the term there's an American use of the term and there's a global use of the term. And, and globally, evangelicalism is not in the same uh, sort of uh, challenging position it is here. Uh, you know, we have brothers and sisters around the globe who, who proudly identify as evangelicals, many of whom are deeply persecuted for, for their faith and naming the name of Jesus. And, and so for the sake, for their sake, I think it's, it's important to work hard to to retain and, and understand what we mean by that term here. So I'm suspecting that when we're going to talk about in a couple of months living faithfully in a world of difference uh, in the book, in the forthcoming book, Uncommon Ground, that that's one of the conversations that that you're going to be provoking us to have with ourselves and with others. Um, the world does not define this term nor the experience of evangelicalism in the same way that we often do here in the United States. Um, another observation that you make that I think is really important in this piece, and again, I'm talking with John Inazu. We're talking about a piece that's posted at ChristianityToday.com. It is breaking out of the white evangelical echo chamber, putting faithful witness ahead of political expediency, starts with changing surroundings, words, and friendships. So I want to talk about that surroundings, words, and friendships. Um, part of getting out of the echo chamber is actually getting out of the echo chamber. Talk about uh, sort of the necessity that we intentionally change our surroundings. Yeah, you know, let me mention two things about that. One is our face-to-face -face relationships. I, I think the more I find when I meet people who are different than I am, when I work hard at friendships, uh, whether they're political, religious, or other differences, that I learn something from them. You know, we're not going to agree about everything, but it does, it makes me, it gives me pause about the way I might intuitively see a situation. And it just helps me be, a, I think, a better thinker, a better person, a better Christian to be exposed to that kind of difference. Uh, but then it's also the case, and I heard from some people who read the article, and they would say things like, well, I just don't live, I, I live in a very homogenous community where we're remote, you know, what, what do you want me to do? And I think that's a really, you know, for some people, and I'm sure for some people listening uh, to this program, that that is descriptively the case. And, and, I, and I don't think, you know, your goal, if you're in a rural town that's quite homogenous, is not to become maybe a multi-ethnic church in that town. But I think short of that, the goal is to diversify the inputs. What are you reading? What are your news sources? How are you seeing both national and local events play out? And I think increasingly, you know, we I think Christians like to think that other people are in sort of a media echo chamber, but but I think a lot of Christians are also really subject to hearing monolithic news sources that are not providing a lot of nuance and that are shaping events in a way that doesn't account for uh, the way that a lot of people in the country are seeing them. You remind me that, um, like, this is, in addition to lots of other things that are going on in the world, uh, this is Black History Month here in the United States of America. Um, I, I know that I have um, Christian brothers and sisters who are African-American who do things during Black History Month that I do not do with my own family. And um, if I'm going to be, like, intentionally and actively anti-racist, not just passively not racist, but actively anti-racist, 
um, then I I should probably be become a student of what my um, black and brown brothers and sisters are doing intentionally during Black History Month with their kids. And I should consider what that kind of practice might look like in my own family. I mean, when we talk about getting out of the echo chamber, we're actually talking about taking into consideration what the experience of other people, um, other fellow Christians, uh, what their experience really is. Right. And and being able to learn from those experiences. I think there's right. such an abundance of resources from, from other Christians, uh, from different traditions, from uh, I think the black church in this country is an, is an amazing resource that we can uh, learn from. And, and learning, you know, as you, as you mentioned, is, is understanding Black History Month and also just black history, right? And trying to, mm-hmm. trying to understand that better. I, I'm amazed. I mentioned in the piece, Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. I like the book quite a bit. I'm amazed at how many people react just viscerally and strongly and negatively, even to a mention of that book. And I, I wonder how many of those people have even read the book, uh, because I think Jamar does a pretty careful job of laying out the history and he also frames the book in a way that that anticipates the objections to come, uh, and and I would love for you know more Christians who don't understand that history to engage with something like Jamar's book, or uh, and and to you know let's start start with what are the what are the facts and the descriptions of what happened? Do we know this history? And I mean, if we don't, let's start by learning it, and then talk about its implications. Well, and why do I? I mean, like, spend a moment evaluating why am I defensive about that? Like what what's going on in my heart, in my head, in my own history, whatever, that makes me respond in a visceral defensive way to the words of another person when they are accurately representing what happened in history. Like, I, So I think those are excellent observations. All right, John, um, I want to when we come back from the break, I want to talk about language because I think this is a really important part of the conversation. And then I want to talk about our uh, our evangelical witness, which is where you head in this piece, and I really appreciate it. John Anaju is my conversation partner. We are talking about breaking out of the white evangelical echo chamber, and we'll be right back. All right, I'm talking with John Anaju. He is, among other things, a law professor. Uh, He is also an author. We are looking forward to a forthcoming book that he has edited with Tim Keller. Uh, It'll be out in April, Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. Today, John's here discussing with me a piece that he has posted at ChristianityToday.com entitled Breaking Out of the White Evangelical Echo Chamber. And I recommend that you read it and consider it and discuss it with others. Um, And let's get to the point, uh, the section here about words or language. Um, I thought, I anticipated in advance that this was going to be a section on, like, Christianese, like the words that we use that, you know, only those <laughs> of us that are in, inside the gang understand. Um, but that is not at all where you go. And so talk with us about the power of language um, and this conversation that you are really seeking to provoke us to have um, about the language used in the culture today and how we respond to it. Yeah, thanks. You know, and, and actually, it's not maybe that far off from the from a discussion about Christianese, although the inflection's a, a bit different. And, and I think where I was um, heading with this section of the article was to say that Christians often use descriptive language about the world and about themselves that sounds right to them, but doesn't sound either tonally or descriptively right to others. So one of the terms I point out is the idea of post-Christian. I hear a lot of Christians saying that we're living in a post-Christian country. And there's a way in which 
there's there's a, a a truth element to that. I mean, I think a lot of people recognize that, and rightfully so, that there were there are an incredible number of Christian influences at the founding of the country on Western jurisprudence in all kinds of ways, and that sociologically, for for much of our history, there was particularly a dominant Protestant Christianity and in, in middle class culture, and all of that matters. And the fact that, that is diminishing also matters. But I'm not sure. That leads us to call uh, our country post-Christian for, among other things, it suggests that at one time previously the country was itself Christian. I just don't think that's true. Uh, even with Christian influences, the country did a lot of things that were, were very not Christian, and, and it doesn't help to claim that we, we, we were Christian and we lost something. I think we've always been called to be as Christians and as the church uh, witnesses and resident aliens in the context in which we find ourselves, whatever the government is and try to live faithfully within that environment. Uh, and and uh, and then the other point I was trying to make is Christians often I hear them using words to describe those people who aren't us. And so sometimes I hear words like snowflakes or social justice warriors or the kinds of language uh, and words that are intended to either poke fun at or, or alienate uh, other people. And, uh, you know, we hear those words often directed at us. We hear words like bigot and right wing and closed minded. And uh, I think Christians rightly reject those kinds of uh, sort of lazy and dismissive labels of us. And, and so why, why wouldn't we also want to be very careful with how we use labels against others? So, John, um, I have a listener who is observing that um it seems as if to her during the Trump presidency, um, things have been stirred up in terms of spiritual conversations that are now had in public. These are things that uh, maybe before were elephants in the room, um, and now it's just all out there and we're all talking about it all the time. Uh, many of these things were often not discussed in election cycles before. I think people are pointing to um, the, the reality that see me, it seems to me um, that there's a whole lot more religious or spiritual or faith-related language and references and discussion in this political cycle than at least ever before in my lifetime. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think back to uh, Obama-McCain when Rick Warren hosted a forum about mm. their faith, right? I mean, nationally televised. So um, just as an example, I, uh, President Bush, when he was running, talked about his—the first President Bush about his— uh, his experience being shot down in World War II and praying to God and how that shaped his life. And then the second Bush talked about his own conversion experience. Jimmy Carter was certainly talking about uh, what faith meant to him as a Christian. And 1976 was the year of the evangelical with Carter on the time of Time magazine, on the cover of Time magazine. So I think, uh, you know, there might be a sense in which uh, we, we, we often tend to, to bias the present because we're living in it. But I think if mm. we look back, there's been a lot of discussion about faith, both in terms of the personal commitments of candidates and also the issues uh, in play. Okay, we often bias the present because we're living in it. Is that what you just said? Because yeah, that, yeah. okay, that's a great quote. That's a, yeah, I'm, I'm hey, right thanks. <laughs> yeah, I think that is absolutely, like, there's no question that that's true. Um, okay, let's get to, uh, let's get to the opportunity section of this piece, because I, I absolutely believe that um, that if you use the word evangelical to describe yourself, if you self-identify as an evangelical, you cannot then complain 
that um, people uh, that that the gospel is not getting out there because all you're doing is like self-shaming. Like you're just you're basically saying I'm not good at what I am called to do, which is advance the gospel in my generation. So talk with us about the gospel opportunity that evangelicals have um, and and what it might look like to have an engaging evangelical witness in the world today. Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I guess one thing I think about is um, being being uh, aware of your missional context means knowing the people and the language with which to engage with them. And this is one thing that I, I so appreciate about Tim Keller, and I think one thing that makes us be able to write well together is is when he's preaching in Manhattan, he has to assume an audience that doesn't understand what he's talking about. So he can't start with the Christianese. He can't start with, you know, a, an assumption that people understand the the scriptural passages he's going to unpack. And so you have to set the table a little more carefully and in a way that's engaged with your audience. I think it's the same kind of challenge for those of us who are engaging in the world, whatever our vocational uh, or, or uh, relational lanes are, that we we have to slow down. We have to not assume things. We've got to tell stories really well about why we believe what we believe. Uh, we can't assume that there's going to be sort of a some kind of a 1990s apologetics five-step process to argue someone into faith. It's going to be a relationship, and it's going to be demonstrating love for another person. And then the other part of that, I think, is that we, we can't be afraid to take risks and partner in unusual ways that are going to raise eyebrows. Uh, you know, Jesus did that a lot. The Pharisees were looking at him a lot when he went into risky places that that caused people to wonder what he was doing. That doesn't mean compromise. That doesn't mean you change what you believe or you 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 give in to um, opposing viewpoints that com- that compromise your witness. But it does mean that you you see people as people and love them as image bearers and and take risks to partner with them when you can find common ground with them. John, before I let you go, um, maybe just a word of encouragement to evangelicals who are listening right now, or maybe to people who resist that uh, that term and that designation. Um, you you self-identify as an evangelical, but maybe not with "quote unquote" white evangelicalism. Why don't you tell people, you know, wh- where where you are and why? Yeah, I mean, I just think. Well, first of all, when I use the category of white evangelicalism, I'm really trying to tap into a, a political and sociological category that people have been naming for a long time. And so, what I meant to do in the article was to jump into that particular conversation. Uh, and and I'm you know deeply grateful and shaped by people and institutions that I would largely place in this in this category of white evangelicalism. Uh, but it, it comes with its downside. Uh, you you assume that the worship style and the preaching and the people we read and what Jesus looked like and all of those things are, are made in our image. And uh, it, it takes a lot of work to, to get out of that. And so you asked to, you know, where am I encouraged or how am I, what I might say that's encouraging. I am so encouraged when I talk and I talk on a lot of college campuses to younger evangelicals, uh, both on Christian campuses and then non-Christian campuses like my own who are, who are vibrant in their faith who are excited to to give their lives to the witness and work of of Jesus, and who are not afraid to uh, to break out of the echo chamber to engage graciously with others who understand this kind of difference. And and I think w- the one thing I would sort of maybe challenge the rest of us to do is: can we be better role models and mentors to them? Because I think they're looking for those, and I think often what they see are are the opposite when they when they see 
uh, older Christians in, in this country. And, and uh, I, I think there's so much to be encouraged by the uh, the 20-something generation and, and those following, and, and that we have a lot of work to, we have a lot of responsibility on our end to model well for them what faithful engagement looks like. John Inazu, thank you so much. As always, you can find John at Washington University in St. Louis. You can also find him on Twitter at John Inazu. Uh, I hope you'll come back when the book comes out and talk with us um, about about what you've been working on, what you've been thinking about, and what is in uncommon ground, living faithfully in a world of difference. Yes? Absolutely. I'll this is that's my, that's my way of getting you, right, you know, publicly to say yes beforehand. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, John. Blessed Ash Wednesday. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Wow. I, um, I, I got a, an email during today's show. Um, and I have to tell you, I feel very affirmed by those of you who are listening today and um, are encouraging me over text messages and email. Um, this this listener says, the Holy Spirit stirs in me a lot when I commune with you over ideas and thoughts that you put forward on the show, and Lent is no exception. Um, I, I do consider what we do here together um, a, a communion of the Spirit of sorts. And so thank you so much for listening. We've got a whole nother hour coming up next. Bill English will be with me. And then I'm talking with Catherine Parks about her new book, Strong. Um, so if you're listening today, it is the season of Lent. Today is Ash Wednesday. Consider taking on a spiritual practice that you might be drawn more closely unto Christ. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.